Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather as your people under your word to sing praises to you. Oh God, it's your word that we need. May it dictate our time this morning. And God, by your spirit, would you work through your word to lead us in holiness and righteousness that our lives would honor you. For you alone, O oh Lord, are worthy of all honor and praise. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you may know this, some of you may not, but my first job out of college, uh, I, I worked in a call center in Birmingham. Uh, I worked for a company called DocuPack, and we did a program for the Army, uh, for the National Guard and for the Army Reserve to help them recruit uh, people into those branches of the, the Army. Uh, now, when I had this job, when I got this job fresh out of, out of college, not quite fresh out of college, but a couple of months after I graduated, uh, Lacey and I had been dating for a little over a year. And at that point, we knew where our relationship was headed. We knew that we wanted to get married. We were starting to have those conversations, not the ifs, but the wins. And so my getting a job was kind of one of those things where you're like, all right, now this is now we can really start moving, moving in this direction. Um, but there was one little thing. See, I'm a little bit older than Lacey, so... She was not quite done with school when I got this job. She still had a year and a half left in school. And so for us, as we were having those conversations about when do we get married, it all revolved around, will we be able to get married before Lacey graduates, or are we going to have to wait un until she graduates um, you know, on, down, on down the road a little bit? So my job, it, it didn't pay enough really just to support the both of us. It didn't pay enough to allow me to move out of my parents' house, but that's another conversation for another day. Um, but we were able to look at, you know, what I had saved up to that point, uh, what I would be making, and we were able to say, all right, like, there's enough wiggle room here for us where we can get married in December before Lacey graduates, and then uh, that will carry us through to May. When she graduates, she's got a nursing degree. People always need nurses, so we weren't concerned about her being able to get a job, and so we were like, great, we've, we've got this. We're, we're, we've got it under control. So we got married December the 31st of 2011, what, what, New Year's Eve, it was awesome. Uh, and we had everything mapped out. Everything was, was good to go. She was going to graduate in May. She would get a job in Birmingham where I was already working. We would run up the lease in our apartment here in Tuscaloosa. We would move to Birmingham and, and really get our lives rolling there. What we didn't account for was a recession that hit the military hard, reducing their, uh, their spending and me losing my job. So a month after our wedding, the military suspended the program that gave me a job. And a month after suspending this program, they had to terminate it because there was no money for it. And so within two months of Lacey and I being married, I did not have a job, and she was a second semester senior at the university working like 10 hours a week. So income was uh, kind of hard to, to find. There wasn't really a lot of room in the plans that we had made for me to lose my, my job, but there we were. It was a real quick punch in the gut, a real quick reality check for us about what happens when you make plans. And we all know that that's just a reality of life, right? We, we make plans, but sometimes things just don't go according to plan. And sometimes our plans get derailed in really big and really scary ways. And so 
what do we do with that? I mean, what do we do when life brings us to our knees? And even more important than that, I think, is the question, how do we think about God? And how do we respond towards Him when life levels us? So with that, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 39. We're going to read the whole chapter. So if you're already there with me, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 39, it says this, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So I think there are two things in the text for us to see this morning. And the first is that God's promises prevail even in our suffering. So I think we, most of us in the room probably know exactly who Joseph is. We're familiar with his story, but just by way of refresher, he is the favorite son of Jacob, the 11th child of Jacob, the 11th son of Jacob, rather, uh, and the first son of uh, his beloved wife, Rachel. 
Uh, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So what does that mean for Joseph? Well, that means he's the great-grandson of Abraham. We know that Joseph had, at this point in the text, he had a fancy cloak that his dad had given to him. We know that Joseph had had some dreams about his family bowing down to him or whatever, you know. And then there was also that whole uh, bit where he uh, tattletailed on some of his other brothers. And so, un, you know, can't understand why, his brothers kind of hated him. Um, they, they, weren't a, they weren't a big fan. Their dislike of Joseph was so great, they decided, all right, we're going to kill this fool. We have got to do away with this guy. But then they reverse course, right? When the oldest brother, Reuben, he comes to them and he's like, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a well. All the while, Reuben is planning to get him back out of the well and get him back to Jacob. Uh, but then before Reuben can do that, another brother, Judah, says, you know what? Why would we kill him? We could make some money off of him. Let's sell him to these Ishmaelites that have come upon us and make a little bit of pocket change off of Joseph. So they do. They sell him off to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver uh, and... He is then sold by the Ishmaelites to Potiphar, who is captain of the guard there in Egypt. Verse 1 goes right back to the end of chapter 37. But then in verse 2, we see that everything's not lost for Joseph. Consider for a second who bought him. It was a well-to-do Egyptian official. He could have been sold to anybody. Anybody, anywhere could have bought him. But they didn't. It's Potiphar. And we need to look at this and recognize this isn't just some happy coincidence for Joseph. He was bought by this well-to-do official. And what we need to see in that is that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was with him. And we don't have to infer that, just kind of guess that. The text tells us that. Everything we read in verses 2 to 6 shows us that and explicitly states that. Joseph became a successful man in the house of Potiphar because the Lord was with him. He was in the house rather than being forced to do hard labor out in a field. He finds favor with Potiphar because Potiphar recognizes the Lord is with him. And so finding favor with Potiphar, Joseph ends up in charge of everything, both in the house and out of the house. The text makes it abundantly clear This is all a result of the Lord being with Joseph. And so we have to ask, well, is this just like supposed to be us? Are we supposed to look at this and go, okay, cool. God feels sorry for this little guy. He's throwing him a bone. No. No, this is is pointing us to the fact that God is one who is faithful to the covenants that he makes. His word is always trustworthy. Because his word is always true. Consider what he said to Abraham. If we were to go back to Genesis 17. There we read that he covenants with Abraham. And as part of that, what does he do? He says, I I will be your God. And I'll also be the God of your offspring. And because God is faithful to the covenants that he makes, we then read in Genesis 26, where God tells Isaac, Abraham's son... I will be with you, and I will bless you. He's faithful to his covenants. He's being faithful to the covenant that he made to Abraham as he extends it to his son Isaac. This faithfulness is revealed once more when we get to Genesis 28, where God tells Isaac's son, Jacob, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever it is that you go. I'm with you. 
I'll keep you. I'll bless you. Covenants that God is being faithful to just goes on and on and on. And then when we get to Genesis 39, we are seeing that God can be trusted to be faithful to the covenant that he has made because Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, is experiencing firsthand the blessing of those promises that God had made. And not only that, we also see the benefit of God's faithfulness to his covenant spilling over to the people who are around Joseph. When we see verse 5, what we see there is that the Lord being with Joseph equals Potiphar and his whole household being blessed. Everyone within Joseph's proximity is blessed because the Lord is blessing him. And that takes us right back to Genesis 12 verse 3 where the Lord tells Abraham that he would bless those who blessed him. God is faithful to do the things that he has said that he will do. He has said that he would be the God of his called out people, going with them and keeping them. Why? Because there is people, and he's faithful to the covenants and the promises that he makes. All of Joseph's success was a result of the faithfulness of God. I mean, verse 3 tells us that. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. That's not to say that Joseph just sat around and twiddled his thumbs and, and waited and God made everything happen. I think when we look at the text with the way that Joseph is presented both in this chapter and in the chapters to come, uh, it, it paints a picture for us of a young man of, of good character. And so I think it's safe to assume that he was diligent to do all the duties that Potiphar had given him to do. But the success, the success was of God. The blessing was of God. Of course, I think we also need to be careful not to read this and read into it that, well, hey, I guess everything's going to work out all right for Joseph. Things are going fine. It's all, all good. Things are working out for him. There's nothing fine about this situation. I mean, the text makes it abundantly clear to us in its emphasizing over and over again just who Potiphar is. He doesn't, it doesn't say the captain of the guard, the captain of the guard. It, it tells us that's who he is, but emphasized over and over again is that he's Joseph's Egyptian master, his master, his master's wife, his master, his master's master. Over and over again, it reminds us Joseph is a slave to this man. And on top of that, he was betrayed by his flesh and blood, by his brothers. They wanted him dead, and then they sold him into slavery. No, everything's not fine. And yet, the author is being diligent to show us that the word of the God of Abraham is good. He does not abandon, and he does not forsake the offspring of Abraham. He is with Joseph. And if the Lord is with Joseph in his sufferings, why do we think that he's far from us when we suffer? And I'll answer my own question. It's because suffering is terrible. It's not enjoyable. When you feel like your world is crumbling, it's only natural to come to the point where you feel like everyone, especially God, has turned their back on you. The doctor tells you it's cancer or tells you that a loved one has a disease that they're not going to get better from. You, your spouse or a parent, 
is fired from your job or their job for no apparent reason, for, especially for no fault of their own. Everyone in your life turns their back on you. Your spouse walks out on you. Who hasn't felt like they were on an island all on their own when life didn't go the way that they had planned? But this text paints a picture of a God who never abandons his people. Paul details in Galatians 3 that the true offspring of Abraham are all those who, like Abraham, are by faith counted as righteous. And the Lord Jesus, in John 14, 18, says of those who are justified by faith, who by their faith are counted as right with God, he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We know about suffering. From sickness, to difficulty in marriage, to wayward children, to loneliness, and all points in between. People in this room, we have all been impacted by difficult situations in our lives. And now this, this text, it doesn't provide us with the promise that God is just going to fix everything for us this side of eternity. In fact, with Joseph, what, when we read on and what we're about to come back to is the fact that for Joseph, things got a whole lot worse before they ever started to get better. But those who belong to God by faith in Jesus have been called out by a God who promises a day when our tears will be wiped from our eyes and when death and mourning and crying and pain will all cease to be. And here, at the very beginning of our Bible, we have evidence that He will do what He says He will do. Even when we don't have all the answers, even when we don't have one answer, we have this. This is good because he is good and he's trustworthy. But do you trust that? Do you trust that he is good and faithful to his word? For Joseph, despite the circumstances, by God's grace, he had risen to prominence in Potiphar's house. But all that was about to come crashing down because of the unfaithfulness of Potiphar's wife. And so that's the second thing I think we should see in the text, is that God's plans prevail even in our suffering. I want you to notice again, look back at verse 6, and look at the second half of verse 6, just that subtle little change of direction. So through the first half of, of 6, and starting in verse 2, all we've seen is the Lord is faithful, the Lord is faithful, He's blessing Joseph, blessing Joseph, bless, blessing Joseph. Well, then all of a sudden, just seemingly out of nowhere, at the second half of verse 6 it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And that's how Potiphar's wife enters the narrative, which should probably tell us a little something about Mrs. Potiphar's wife. It should probably also be telling to us that we don't actually know what Mrs. Potiphar's wife, what her name was. We have no idea what her name was. We just know that she's Joseph's master's wife and that she has eyes for Joseph. And a third thing that should be very telling for us about who this woman is and what she is like is the way that she makes her desires for Joseph known. 
So Bruce Waltke, in his commentary on Genesis, the way that he describes her demand of Joseph, he describes it as brutish, which is a fun, a fun word. Her, de- her demand of Joseph was brutish. She's not trying to break him down. She's not trying little by little to seduce him over time. No, she's frank and to the point. It's a lust-fueled demand for immediate gratification. But then you have Joseph's response. And it's held in stark contrast to the immediacy of her demand. Her demand is short and to the point. Joseph then responds with a little bit lengthier and way more honorable um, explanation as to why what she wanted simply was not going to happen. First, he reminds her of how Potiphar had treated him and all the responsibility that had been given to him. Basically, he looks at her and he's like, he trusts me. Look how much he trusts me. Look how good he's been to me and all the responsibility that he has given to me. With him trusting me this much, how could I possibly break his trust? Then, that's not enough, he reminds her, look, he's given me access to anything in the house except for you. But what does he tag on with that? You're his wife. He reminds her, lady, you have a husband. I'm being faithful to your husband. Maybe you should try that out sometime. It's pretty good. He's reminding her that she has a husband, and she needs to be loyal to him, just like Joseph is being loyal to him. But then third, and this I think is most crucial to our understanding of Joseph's character and where he is at spiritually. He tells her this wickedness, would be sin against God. This would dishonor God. Despite his circumstances, Joseph wants no part of sinning against the Lord. And this serves to point us back to his lineage. He is the true offspring of Abraham who truly trusts God. And because he trusts in the living God, he will not engage in wickedness, and sin against the Lord. But does Mrs. Potiphar listen? No. No, she doesn't. She persists in her demand. She then does start trying to break him down. But Joseph is honorable, and he will not budge. But finally, she gets her chance. She gets her hands on him. She grabs his cloak, all the while demanding, Lie with me. Joseph, though, he's able to get away, but not with his cloak. And so now recognizing that she has a chance to get back at him for denying her, she springs into action. And it's so conniving. She calls in all the men, fellow slaves that are serving under Joseph, and and notice what she does. She says, see, he has brought among us I'm with you guys. He's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. So who does she point the finger at? She points the finger at Joseph. She points the finger at Potiphar. Look what your master did. He brought in this scallywag. And this guy is here to make fun of all of us. He's here to make a mockery of every single one of us. And so what is she, what is she doing? She's not just turning the house on Joseph. She's turning the house against Potiphar. And so what this does is it makes it impossible for Potiphar, even if he were to believe Joseph over his wife, 
which with what Potiphar does, it seems to suggest he, he might, it's impossible for Potiphar to keep Joseph around. Because now that this seed has been planted, all that's going to do is produce in the other servants this idea of, what's Potiphar doing? Can we really trust this guy? And maybe lead to a revolt. Second, she waits till Potiphar gets home, and then, still blaming him, she changes her story ever so slightly to where now it's all about her. Forget everybody else. They don't matter. It's all about me. But it's also now a guilt trip for Potiphar. You brought him in, and he tried to sexually assault me. It's your fault. You did this all, Potiphar. So what does Potiphar do? He takes Joseph. He throws him into prison. Now, law by the law, he could have killed him. This was a capital offense. He could have died, but instead Potiphar throws him into prison. And so here is Joseph, who despite his circumstances, had reached a position of second only to Potiphar in the whole house, but now he's been thrown into prison. And now he's in a position lower than even the lowest slave in Potiphar's house. All because of the jealousy of his brothers and all because of the jealousy of Potiphar's wife. And so this ought to serve as a reminder for us that just because you do the right thing, it does not mean that things are always going to work out okay for you, nor does it mean that you are entitled for them to work out okay for you. I mean, we know that, right? But I wonder how often we act with this sense of entitlement, like God owes us something because we checked all the right boxes for him. The reality of life is that sometimes bad things happen because we live in a broken and fallen world that is full of broken, fallen, sinful people just like us. And we can acknowledge that and we can say that that's true and I believe that, but, but then what usually happens? When we do the right thing and bad things happen afterwards, we get all self-righteous like we are only ever blameless and we accuse God of being unfair. But he doesn't change. He's always faithful. And he is always trustworthy. And what happens next in Joseph's life is proof. When we get to verses 21 through 23, it reads almost exactly like verses 2 through 6. It's just in a new location. The Lord continues to bless Joseph, who seems to continue to show the same character and the same work ethic that Potiphar saw when Joseph first arrived in Egypt. But again, the emphasis of the text is that it is the Lord who is driving the ship. The Lord is the one who is granting Joseph success and favor with the prison keeper. Why? Because he is faithful to his people. He's faithful to the covenants that he makes. He does not abandon his people. He's with them even when bad things happen, though they did the right thing. When bad things happen that we simply cannot explain. He has a plan, and he's executing it. Now, we don't know what Joseph knew about God's plan at this point. At this point in the narrative, I think it, it's fairly safe to say he, he probably understood next to nothing. But we do know that later on that he comes to understand exactly why God had allowed him to suffer the way that he had. I'm sure you know how the story plays out. Joseph is rescued out of prison by who? Pharaoh himself. Because God works through Joseph to interpret dreams about an upcoming famine. 
This leads to Joseph again being second in command to someone. This time it's Pharaoh. Now Joseph is in charge of all of Egypt under Pharaoh and Pharaoh alone's authority. And also, because of this, he's reunited with his family in Egypt after the famine forces them to come to him for grain where they bow before him just like he dreamed. Eventually, his whole family is there living in Egypt, and that's where his father dies following his being reunited with his beloved son. And so following the death of their father, the, the brothers of Joseph, they come up with a lie to try to talk Joseph into not hurting them. It's one of the more comical moments in the whole account. You can just see them just kind of shaking like, oh no, dad's dead. Joseph's going to kill us. It's like in Christmas Story, you know, where Randy is hiding under the sink and the mom has to go find Randy because daddy's going to kill Ralphie. Like, I, th I think that's kind of how the brothers were responding here. They were hiding under the sink going, Joseph's going to kill us. But what does Joseph say in response? Genesis 50, 19, he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't let him off the hook. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph tells them that everything that they did, and by proxy then, everything that happened to him once he was in Egypt, that was all part of God's plan to keep people from starving to death during this horrific famine. God had a plan and even in their sin, everything was going according to his plan. But we have to see, there are bigger things at play here than even just people staying alive. No, this takes us all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and the promised seed of the woman who would reverse the effects of the fall. No, this, this is about God keeping his called-out family, the family of Abraham, alive. Because it was from Abraham that an offspring would come who would bless all the nations of the earth. And like Joseph, the offspring, the seed of the woman, would suffer greatly. Joseph was falsely accused of a crime that he did not commit. And he was punished because of it. But his punishment put him in a place where he could eventually save people from death. Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the seed of the woman, was falsely accused of crimes that he did not commit and was put to death for them. In fact, he was punished for crimes that other people commit, our sins against God Almighty. He was punished in our place for our sins, and he died the death that we rightly deserve. He died so that we could live, and his resurrection assures us of that. By grace through faith, anyone who trusts in him is saved from certain death, all as a result of his being found guilty for false charges and being punished in our place. Because he suffered when falsely accused, 
we now have reason for hope when we suffer. Suffering is never part of our plans. We don't choose it. We don't schedule time for it. I don't have, you know, 35 marked down here in a couple of years to suffer. I didn't, I didn't do that. But it comes anyways. But by faith, as part of God's called out people, we can trust that he is with us in our suffering. And because of this, we go through suffering different than other people do. Those who are outside of the body and the family of faith. We may never know why the things that happen to us happen, but we can know that it's not without a purpose. When we suffer, we have the opportunity and the ability because of the Spirit of God that dwells within us to live in such a way that points people to the fact that the Lord is still with us and He's still good, just like Potiphar saw with Joseph. And because of this, I think we should consider how we deal with suffering within our families. You know, I I think we we often do all that we can to try to shield our children from adult problems, from the suffering that exists in the world. And certainly, depending on the situation, there may be details that they just are not mature enough to handle and to know. But our responsibility as parents is to teach them who God is and to model faithfulness to Him for them. So when things are not going well, why put up a facade for them that everything is actually fine? If one or both parents have lost their job, this is an opportunity for our children to see their mom and their dad deal with fear, but also to display faith in God, to know that He's still good and He's still present, and for them to watch you cry out to God because you trust Him. And to watch you pursue obedience to him because you know he's good. What about when a family member gets sick? This is a chance for them to see that you, you're not always in control. And you can't always fix things. But you trust a God who is infinitely good and infinitely worthy of their trust. And though he may not fix things the way they want or the way that you want, he's still good. What about a season of financial hardship? Is this not a time where we can show them that our satisfaction is not in the treasures and the trinkets of this world? It's in Christ. And that God, who has said that He knows everything that we need, that God can be trusted to provide us with what we need as a family. What about when one parent wrongs the other? What a chance to model right in front of them forgiveness, grace, patience, and mercy. Telling them that we do it because God first did it for us. I'm not saying that we go to them and we ask them for their laundry list of opinions as to how we should fix the situation. But can we not show them where sin is involved and what that means? Share our fears with them, but all the while live out our fears faith before them, that we trust God, and He's worthy of trust, and worthy of praise, even when life is hard. It's an opportunity for them to see mom and dad depending on God as they hear you cry out to God in prayer about the situation. 
It's an opportunity for them to see mom and dad continue to seek to honor God, even though he seems far away, because their parents are trusting in his goodness and in his faithfulness. Listen, we we don't just disciple our kids with our words. We disciple them with our actions, specifically our obedience, and especially in the midst of suffering. We can't do that if we're trying to shield them from the fallen world that they live in. They're going to figure out it's messed up all on their own really quick. Of course, it doesn't just have to be our kids. What about the example of trust and faithfulness that we can set before other members of our family or our neighbors or our peers or our classmates or our co-workers who are far from God? We have an opportunity to reach them too by not trying to hide all of our problems so that we can only show them the carefully crafted image of ourselves that we want other people to see. No, our suffering is a chance to be real with people about the struggles and the trials that everyone faces. But in it, we have the chance to point them to the one our hope is in. And because of that hope, we have the chance to show them that there's a reason why we do not suffer the way that the unbelieving world suffers. It's because we're trusting in a God whose plans are not thwarted just because we're suffering. In fact, our suffering just might be part of his grand redemptive plan to call a people to himself. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, O God, that you are good even when we suffer. You're still righteous. You're still holy. You're still worthy of trust because you're good. Your word shows us that we must trust you, that we ought to trust you, that we have no reason not to trust you because you are a God who is faithful to do all that you have said that you will do. God, may that be our spirit because, Lord, life is hard and bad things happen for seemingly no reason at times. But, God, when these times come, I pray, God, that you would strengthen each of us, that we would honor you, that we would live in such a way, even in the midst of suffering, that begs people to ask the question, why are you so different? That we might point them to the love that you've shown us in Christ Jesus. I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus.